Hamlet Podcast, episode 27. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We have arrived at Act 2, Scene 4, a rather fascinating change from all the drama we just saw, from the porter to the murder revealed and Macbeth's very dramatic confession to having killed the guards. Now we move to somewhere outside Macbeth's castle, where Ross enters with an old man. We aren't told anything about him. He doesn't have a name. He's just an older inhabitant who can reliably tell us that the likes of what he's just seen have not occurred in a long time. Three score and ten I can remember well, within the volume of which time I have seen hours dreadful and things strange, but this sore night hath trifled former knowings. He's saying that he can cast his memory back at least three score and ten years. So he's got memories from 70 years, which means he's probably closer to 80. This may seem like a random number to remember, especially when it's phrased like this. Why not just say 70 instead of three times 20 and 10? Only French numbers tend to be this complicated in their expression. However, the book of Psalms in the Bible has a passage that states, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. The psalm suggests that this is the normal length of a human life, maybe eighty, threescore years and another score, by reason of strength. The old man is stressing that he's been alive and conscious for at least that full length of time, and so he can remember an entire span of human life. But within the volume of that entire time, despite having seen hours dreadful, a nice contrast with seventy years, and things strange, yet another great euphemism, he's never seen the like of this sore night. It's been so strange and wild, it has trifled former knowings. It has reduced everything he thought he knew to trifles, to insignificance. And Ross seems to agree. He says, Ah, good father, thou seest the heavens, as troubled with men's act, threaten his bloody stage. By the clock tis day, and yet dark night strangles the travelling lamp. Is't night's predominance, or the day's shame, that darkness does the face of earth entomb when living light should kiss it? Here Ross gives quite a charming nod to the theatre. Obviously a great many of Shakespeare's plays were performed in the open air, and so the sky could be pointed out above if necessary. But the canopy directly over the stage was referred to as the heavens, So here, the actor can make a little nod in that direction. I think that's quite likely here, since he immediately expands his theatrical metaphor. He's saying that the act that has been committed by man on this bloody stage, the earth, has troubled the heavens, which now look threatening down upon us. The heavens, as troubled with man's act, threaten his bloody stage. So it's a neat tie-in between the stage and the blood and the action and the heavens above, both theatrical and real. The king's murder is such a terrible crime that it's being reflected in ominous skies overhead. It's unusually dark, he's saying. 
By the clock, tis day, but dark night strangles the travelling lamp. There's a conflict between night and day, and dark night is strangling the sun, here rather pathetically reduced to being a travelling lamp. And it's interesting that for the purposes of this image, it's the sun that moves around the earth. It's the one that travels. Ross is wondering why this darkness should be upon them. Is it that the powers of night are taking over, or that daylight is so ashamed of the king's murder that darkness has buried the earth when living light should kiss it? There's quite a remarkable balance of images here with lots of antithesis to unpack, almost too many to juggle. Darkness is burying the earth, entombing it with this image of death and night, contrasted with living light which should kiss the face of the earth. Love and death entwined upon this bloody stage. It's night's predominance or the day's shame that darkness does the face of earth entomb when living light should kiss it. The old man responds, "'Tis unnatural, even like the deed that's done. On Tuesday last, a falcon, towering in her pride of place, was by a mousing owl hawked at and killed. Evidently, strange things have been in the air, unnatural occurrences. The deed that's done, the murder of Duncan, is unnatural, and just like it, last Tuesday, an owl attacked a falcon. Owls normally hunt for mice, but here we have this crazy image of an owl going for an apex avian predator, a falcon. The language around it is very rich. The falcon was towering with pride of place, but then the owl becomes like a hawk and kills it. It's very unusual, aggressive imagery. And of course, we've already discussed how owls are already a bad sign, but now an owl that's also going against its own nature is even worse. Of course, this upset in nature mirrors what has happened to Duncan. He was the king, had his own pride of place, and has been killed in a similarly surprising and violent attack from someone who should not have attacked him. The old man doesn't let on that he has any suspicions. But it's never a good sign when events in nature reflect the turmoil of humankind and our own politics and dramas. Ross now responds with an even more shocking story. And Duncan's horses, a thing most strange and certain, beauteous and swift, the minions of their race, turned wild in nature, broke their stalls, flung out, contending against obedience as they would make war with mankind. He's describing a thing most strange and certain. He has to qualify, even before he tells it, that it's certain. It's true, it really happened. Duncan's beauteous and swift horses, the very best of their kind, minions of their race, clearly they must have been the best if they were both beautiful and fast, the two things you'd want to get on a horse, turned wild, broke down their stalls and burst out of them. They bucked and threw off any kind of obedience and looked as though they might go to war with their human masters. Until the rise of machinery, horses were the most essential animals for human transportation and had been for thousands of years. For horses to rebel like this, seemingly unprovoked, and seem ready to attack, this is quite an alarming image. The old man, 
makes it even more startling. He says, "'Tis said they eat each other." Apparently the horses were so frenzied that they ate each other. Horses are confirmed herbivores, so the very idea of them starting to attack and then cannibalise each other is very ghastly indeed. Again, if we are to read any kind of prophecy from these natural events, any kind of prediction that what's happening in nature might happen in the affairs of men, well then Scotland should brace itself for some grisly fighting, perhaps even civil war. Ross confirms that yes, the horses really did go for each other like this. They did so, to the amazement of mine eyes that looked upon it. His eyes were amazed by the sight, but he confirms that he saw it happen. Ross is always delighted to tell people what he has seen. He's the play's messenger. The likelihood of the horses rebelling like this is of course thin, but that's what makes it such an extraordinary image that it happened. And that's why he says it is a thing most strange and certain. This event is also, I think, the motivation for a much-discussed image from a landmark production by the French company Théâtre du Soleil a number of years ago. In it, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth performed Act 2, Scene 2, the murder scene, in what looked like a huge stable, complete with what seemed to be live horses whinnying in their stalls. Having trained with Ninagawa and his own brand of highly convincing stage horses, I wouldn't swear that they were real animals. But this doesn't really matter. What's more interesting is the weird tension and urgency that this location gave to the scene. The story was in no way changed, but there was a real sense that the horses were on the brink of breaking out. They whinnied and made unpredictable sounds throughout, really ramping up the tension. As a result, the scene we're discussing now was all the more alarming we had been in the stable with them, so now the thought of them eating each other felt all the more immediate and shocking. But just as we do start thinking about it, another character enters. Ross spots him and announces, Here comes the good Macduff. It's not at all an accident that Ross says it's the good Macduff approaching. Things are perhaps too hot inside the castle, and maybe he needs a breath of fresh air even if it's this dark outside in the middle of the afternoon. Good Macduff, always to be juxtaposed with his counterpart, Macbeth. For what he's going to say, we'll wait until the next episode. Just to let you know, there was a glitch in the programme that I've been using to update the show notes onto the website, so if you've been looking eagerly for them and found nothing, my sincere apologies. There's a few weeks missing, but everything should be completely up to date for all 27 episodes of our Macbeth Marathon so far in the next day or so. There are at least as many still to come, and I hope you'll stay tuning in as we continue through the play. Thanks a million for your company, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>